0: Welcome to The Picklist, the podcast for curious food industry minds.
1: Every week, we bring you our pick-up articles from the world of food and grocery retail and explore what they tell us about how our food industry is changing in these extraordinary times.
0: We chat about the major news from nationals and big trade titles, but we also love unearthing gems from niche publications and sharing brilliant,
1: quirky food stories that change the way we think about the food we eat and produce. I'm Julia Glotz. And I'm Laura Ryan. It's great to have you with us. Let's start the show. Hi Julia, it's week 12
0: of The Pick List and how's your week gone?
1: Hello Laura. It's gone really well. We have just uh, bought a car. We've been meaning to get a car ever since we moved up to the northeast to actually finally explore Northumberland and the surrounding area as well. Now we finally have a car. We've started exploring the area. It is so, so beautiful. Uh, we went to the Sycamore Gap, walked along Hadrian's Wall. Uh, we've been to george Bay and to Blythe Beach. Um, so I'm absolutely loving it and um, if anyone listening has any tips for what i should be checking out um, in the northeast please do let me know but um absolutely um enjoying just the stunning landscape and surroundings up here at the moment how has your week been
0: you're putting me to shame because there's a couple of places there you've mentioned I've never been to, so uh, you need to be giving me some tips. Um, yeah, fantastic week, thank you. And exciting news for me this week, um, along with a colleague in Australia, we're launching Global Meat Alliance, uh, which is a group of 10 different organisations, predominantly levy boards around the world, plus a couple of uh, big commercial uh, meat processors to come together and start having a conversation about a single narrative for the meat industry, which which is really, really exciting. So uh, looking forward to to seeing how that progresses
1: over the next couple of weeks. Fantastic. That's really, really exciting to hear. I can't wait to hear um, what you're actually going to do with the organisation and, um, and some of the outputs that are going to be coming out of that as well.
0: I'll be roping you in, don't worry. Uh, now, we've got a guest on this week's show, haven't we?
1: We do. We have Kat Gazolli, the founder of Piccolo. Kat is so knowledgeable, such a brilliant guest. Um, she brought fantastic articles for us to discuss and um, also brought some really interesting insight to some of the articles that we were discussing. So um, yeah, she's, uh, she's been a real treat to have on the show. A
0: fantastic guest indeed. And we've also got a sponsor,
1: we do! Shopper Intelligence. Shopper Intelligence is the first and only syndicated measurement programme built from the direct voice of food and drink shoppers, with unique white metrics in dozens of categories, giving you why and how shoppers buy, not just what they buy.
0: If you'd like more information, go to shopperintelligence.com or click on the link in the show notes. Let's
1: start the show! Kat, welcome to the show. We are so excited to have you on. Thank you for joining us.
2: Happy to be here.
1: And Kat, for people who are not familiar with you, can you give us a sort of 30-second introduction to who you are and how you're connected to the food industry?
2: Sure. Um, I'm founder of Piccolo. It's a premium baby and toddler food brand across all the UK malts um, and increasing internationally now in China and South Africa about 50 products from infant to about four years old um, and before that I was CEO of Slow Food which is a food organization campaigning on good fair food. Brilliant and you're
1: joining us from Italy at the moment which um, is going to become relevant and tie into one of the articles you've um, you've brought for us as well is that right?
2: That is right straight from Frulli Venezia Giulia
1: Perfect. I suspect you've got slightly nicer weather than we have up here in the Northeast at the moment. It's been really quite drizzly here, Um, but uh, so excited to see some of the articles that you've brought along for us as well. Kat, why don't you tell us about your first pick for us?
2: So my first pick is from The New York Times. It's all set in Cairo, in Egypt. Um, And it's how one family who's affected by by the coronavirus, which is unfortunately sweeping the world, you know, finds it within themselves to start cooking for their neighbors. And then they basically create like an army of people within their neighborhood who are cooking homemade meals, but also putting little handwritten notes inside the meals. And it, it kind of reminded me of what has been happening in Britain, because there has been initiatives like this in the UK, but I really liked the personal Middle Eastern way that they went about it with like, kind of motivational statements in each meal. It was, a, it's a total grassroots type of no app. It doesn't have all of the food tech that uh, we see happening for initiatives like that in the UK. But I, I, felt, I felt that, you know, at the end of the day, what there's a silver lining to this virus to a certain extent in showing, you know, the good it can bring out in us um, and how that can happen in kind of high tech or low tech in low tech ways, um, but it's all fundamentally about helping each other. And I, I think, I think you know, it's important to get those stories out like that, that are also happening in, in the global South.
0: I thought it was a great article and I really liked the fact that it brought food to the centre of a community, didn't it? And we often, you know, think of food as a, as a commodity item, but the fact it can bring people together and make them feel better, feel, make them feel part of something. And as you say, those notes that they were putting inside um, the packages as well were fantastic in terms of making people feel a bit happier in times that are, are very challenging.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think just this idea of... Um cooking a meal for someone you know especially someone who's going through a hard time who's um who's you know suffering an illness and putting that care in to provide nutrition for another person as well I think that's just um so important at the moment and it feels like this pandemic for all the Uh, terrible tragedy that it's brought has provided an opportunity for us to sort of rethink our relationship with food and maybe kind of focus back on on that sort of really important nurturing role that food has in our lives as well so I I thought the the article really told a great story um, around that I was interested also that you picked an example from Egypt because as you say I think we are There's always the danger that you end up being rather focused on, you know, what's happening in the UK. We often have articles that look at what's happening in other European countries, but also the US. But of course, this is a global pandemic and there's been an extraordinary global response to it as well. So um, it was great to get get an example from Egypt in there as well.
2: My mother grew up in Morocco. My parents have spent a lot of time in Northern Africa. And I think food is glue and the Middle Eastern culture is really about showing love. Um, to your neighbours, to your family through food. And uh, what I'm excited for the UK is, you know, with all of us having to have been in the lockdown, cooking has really gone up just as you can imagine. Everyone's been making meals at home because they've had to, you know, that role of food as also showing love towards your family because you're cooking for them or your friends obviously has come to the forefront.
1: Julia, what's your first pick this week? Um, so my first pick this week is from The Guardian. Um, it's an article called How Nespresso's Coffee Revolution Got Ground Down, and it was written by Ed Cummings. It's an article about the history of Nespresso and, crucially, its future. It's a really interesting read with lots of fantastic detail about how nespresso was started there's a quite an interesting bit of controversy around who actually invented the system um, and also a, a really quite detailed look at what made that model, particularly that dietary consumer model, so successful that today uh, some 14 billion Nespresso capsules are sold every year, both online and from 810 boutiques in 84 countries. So it's a huge success story, but there is also some fairly significant pressure now building on the brand and the coffee capsule format more generally. And all of that is raising some questions about future growth prospects. The article uh, really focuses on three uh, areas of pressure in particular, they are environmental concerns, they are um, concerns around cheaper competitors coming into the market, and then a core concern around brand positioning and changes in consumer behaviour and expectations. On the environmental side, it's a sort of reasonably well-rehearsed story by now, single-serve packaging feels um, rather out of step now that we're more aware of the need to reduce packaging waste. Um, Coffee pods can be recycled in theory certainly, but it's not straightforward because it's a mixture of materials. It's got plastic in it um, as well as the um, aluminium. So you can't just put it in with your normal recycling. Um, there's also been some criticism of Nestle around the sort of uh, granularity of the data that they have published on um, exactly what percentage of their pods end up being recycled and you know, not necessarily providing particularly detailed breakdowns um, on a region by region basis around that. Um, the second pressure that the article talks about is um, those cheaper competitors that can be used with Nespresso machines, but are vastly uh, less expensive than official Nespresso pods. They are a fairly fundamental challenge to the Nespresso business model, which is all about making money from the pods rather than making money from the machines, Um Nestle fought very hard for quite some time to uh, keep rivals out of the market, to stop rivals from producing pods that would work with its machine. It's a battle it ultimately lost. So today there are lots and lots and lots of Nespresso compatible pods from all sorts of companies um, on the market. And they are, of course, putting growing pressure on the Nespresso business model. The third pressure the article talks about, which I think in a way is um, the most fundamental of all the pressures, and that is to do with the Nespresso brand and how it's positioned, how it's perceived. Um, It's slick, it's aspirational, but you could argue it also now feels rather corporate perhaps and a little bit generic and at a time when consumers are more interested in the stories behind the food products that they're buying, you know, we just talked about how the um, pandemic is helping us reconnect with food, and it's certainly making us think a little bit more with food. Well, does that kind of sort of more corporate branding, that very slick, globalized exterior, does that resonate with consumers um, in the way that it would have done perhaps in the uh, sort of early to mid to mid two thousands? Or does you know Nespresso perhaps look increasingly out of touch with that branding? Um, so it's a sort of you know it remains an incredibly successful brand when you just look at the figures um, and, and the sheer scale of the business. And there's absolutely no question that it's completely transformed the way we think about coffee. But um, as we sort of move into uh, yet a new decade and consumers are. Ever more interested in sort of more regional coffee cultures. Um, I think there's some big question marks around, you know, how a brand like Nespresso is going to have to adapt to continue to thrive. Kat, what did you um, what did you make of it of the I article? Mean, I
2: think sitting, sitting in so Fruli is where um, Ely Coffee is from, and then I mentioned I worked with Lavazza a bit when I was with Slow Food. So, despite being in baby food. <laughs> I've had a bit of a coffee of experience. And it was, it was really interesting to read this. I think from like the heart, the first thing I saw is what happened when people started really just using the machine and using the pods. And I saw how it changed things culturally in Italy. So um, even when my own family bought one, what bothered me is, is like having a, a coffee like that is very much about connecting and going to the local bar and seeing in your community so what what an espresso has done essentially is 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 that the way that kind of espresso was used has changed because because of the machine because of how easy it is now to just make it make it yourself it's a it's a high street type of item so I see it as taking slightly away from like the social fabric originally of what a coffee is all about in your neighborhood um, I also felt just from my experience with lavazza that and I looked actually at the recent Nespresso video that they've done on sustainability and recycling. To your point, the problem is now that's not a very dis, uh, defendable type of USP because for like other, many other, Perkle and Lavazza talk a lot about the origin of the coffee, the recycle, the sustainability. So for me, what you said about it looking a bit more corporate, actually that's what is making it different to some of the other ones on the sustainability side i'm facing into this issue myself with like pouches so curbside recycling is something i i'm very deeply into i think to, to make anything easier for a customer to be able to recycle it is always the right thing until you get to even partial curbside recycling it is so hard to make it actually mean anything you make a couple of great points there. I'm
0: not a coffee drinker, I have to admit, and I hadn't even considered that social element. But but you're totally right in terms of a brand. I guess if they're going to maintain and um, protect a premium position, then they've got to do something different than the rest. I guess what one of the things you're mentioning there really is about tone of voice as well, isn't it? You know, the big corporate tone of voice, is that what we want going forwards or do we want something, as you say, other brands are doing where it feels friendlier, it seems and feels more personal, inviting? A, a brand like that in your home.
1: Laura, what's
0: your first pick for us this week Um, my first pick is from food navigator and it's called frozen sales continue to surge as sector outperforms fresh and chilled and this is one of the things that we've seen haven't we sort of tidbits of information about the frozen category over the last couple of months and really interesting to see how many people are going and stocking up the freezer i know i've put a bit more in my freezer than i normally would do um uh, particularly at the beginning of lockdown naively thinking yeah that'll last me three weeks and then this'll all be over. Anyway, what the article talks about is uh, some Kantar figures that have just come out and figures from the British Frozen Food Federation. Uh, And they're saying over the last uh, three months, uh, there's been a 285 million uh, increase in frozen food sales. And that equates to roughly about a 20% value increase and about 17% volume increase. So between March and June. So we're talking really serious numbers there. Um, And this is from all products in the frozen category, everything from ice cream, vegetable, Vegetables and meat. So it's across the board, which is really interesting and unsurprisingly Iceland of uh, the retailer and British food um, frozen Fred British frozen food federation have jumped on the back of this and saying we're going through a fro- frozen food Revival and they've done a, a, an interesting piece of research and I, I always think you know frozen food Is that something for older generations that have got space for a freezer and you know know how to defrost uh, things and, and comfortable with free- things too but their research is showing for 18 to 24 year olds they've really increased their purchasing of this category and see it as great value for money particularly things like fruit and veg where maybe there was waste before and you're dropping things in the bin when you haven't used them it's a great opportunity to reduce that and also interestingly for something that I hadn't thought of meat alternatives and driving that opportunity to meet alternatives and maybe later in the week when the shelf life's gone off meat products Uh, and that's passed then you've got to meet alternatives sat in the freezer for you. Other brands, so not just retailers, have jumped on the back of this uh, and it's really interesting to see. Uh, Birdseye uh, unsurprisingly have led this and they have temporarily uh, replaced Captain Birdseye who's been there brand icon for the last 50 years on the front of some of their packaging, uh, particularly in Iceland. And they've run a competition um, for, a, a, and I like it in the story, they call it a real shopper, uh, so, so not, not a, a bought in um, person, uh, called Charlotte Carter Dunn, who's 24 year old, and she's going to be temporarily on the front of a lot of the packaging. And this has created a huge amount of PR for them, not only replacing Captain Birdseye temporarily, but also a younger female as well, to really Try and connect with these younger generations that frozen food can be for them. Uh, as I mentioned, it's huge about food waste, and they're using that strongly to say that uh, frozen food can negate some of those challenges, and also trying to upskill us in terms of those basic skills about defrosting and refreezing. And then finally, the article is really interesting. It talks obviously about the UK primarily, but then broadens it up into Europe and talks about this isn't just a UK trend, but also in Europe, folks are stocking up with more frozen food which is really interesting and will it be something that we'll continue to see grow and new product development come on board Kat what what do you see and tell us as well from I'm really intrigued from a baby food
2: perspective as well Uh, is frozen something that you you dip into give us your insight it's kind of funny because um you know historically Frozen baby food has really had its ups and downs. In baby, like there has been new entrants in frozen. In France, for example, Danone took a stake in like an incubator type of brand um, to try to get frozen baby food off in France. In the UK, you have Hain and you have Strong Roots that just moved into kids. Um, However, like baby is is quite niche and most people are used to being in the ambient aisle. What I thought was great about this piece, and you know, I was happy to see, is Bird's Eye saying how much uh, people dwell time were on their website on the recipe section. And I think that just goes back to the obviously everyone's cooking. So now people have to think a little bit more or else it's going to get very repetitive. So I feel like across the freezer aisle, which, you know, Tesco has talked about being a very difficult type of place to be shopping in. People People sometimes bring their kids in there just to calm them down. It does have a calming effect. Um, mm-hmm. But in general, it's not like a dwelling type of aisle. Um, so especially, to be honest, in Baby, Baby is an area where people dwell. They read the back of the pack. It has one of the highest dwell times in the whole supermarket. So for Frozen, you kind of want to grab it. You're not like sitting there leaving the freezer door open, which means that the brands, and Eye, as you said, has done a great do- job. I mean, I had seen all the PR you have to be in the consumer's mindset. They kind of have to know it's there. I personally am more of a fresh type of person, Um, but in Italy, for example, in our family, like every week, there's a little frozen truck. There's a company that has just done incredibly well in our region that does a stop on the street across our region and, and, and the nonnas come out and they get their frozen they they decide what to buy right there from the frozen truck, so it's kind of done slightly differently in my region, and it's like part of a ritual. Um, but it's very good quality. So frozen, for for example, here in Italy, doesn't have as much as a negative connotation. Uh, when I moved to Britain from Australia, it was it was interesting, like how negative the vibe was on on frozen. But I definitely think that that's coming coming around. We get a lot of requests on how to like decant our products and freeze them into ice cubes. So I I think that it I think that the trend is, is changing and I'm happy for the frozen industry because quite frankly, it's great as as Julia said around food waste.
1: I'm so interested to hear that you have the uh, the little frozen truck in Italy as well. So I grew up in Germany, and we had um, a fairly large frozen truck come round as well. Um, I think it was a company called Beaufrost, um, and then there was another one called Iceman as well. And yes, they would just basically do door-to-door kind of direct-to-consumer sales. And I remember my mum always stocking up um, the freezer. So I kind of echo what you were saying about, you know, I think that... Sort of really negative connotations that um, that sometimes exist or have historically existed here, um, don't necessarily exist in other markets. So there's a lot we can potentially learn from from those markets and how they've sort of merchandised the categories and and managed to sort of communicate quality cues around that. As I'm thinking, Picard in France, as well, has done a really nice job around that. I'm also really interested in what birds I was saying around some of the consumer interest in recipes and just, I guess, almost sort of general frozen preparation skills um, that, that consumers are looking for, because that to me also suggests that it's not just a distress purchase. You know, we're in the midst of a pandemic. I need to stock up. I need something with long shelf life. I guess I'm now buying frozen but a sort of slightly deeper level of engagement of sort of wanting to make the most of the food that has been bought. I mean, that has to be a positive signal. Kat, what's the um, second pick you've brought for us?
2: It's back to Italy again, Julia. Sorry. <laughs> it's, uh, I chose a piece in the FT, um, all about um, the writer talking about her grandmother. Who's still alive? And uh, the love of polenta, and it's it's uh, polenta is is a is the staple of truly Venezia Giulia. And it was so nice to see it featured in in the FT because I was thinking a lot about what's happening in retail right now, which is around like value and people, you know, needing to get let's say more meals out of their ingredients. Um, so we see like quite a lot of high sales in our cooking range, for example, for kids. And that is, I think, partially because you know you could get two meals out of our sauce or you know our stock cube; those kind of items, which are really different than like a single serve type of item. Polenta is a really filling type of carbohydrate that you know got this region th- through World War II. So the piece is all about the origins of polenta. You know how how much this you know, the bonding with her grandmother when she made it, um, and and. It's served in the recipe with um, it's a it's a shrimp recipe, but actually um, that's more like on the Trieste seaside. Once you move up to the northern part of the region, it's done in a different way, obviously with more like wild game where the mountains are of Rovinj and Um But it is interesting because they just opened a polenta hipster type of bodega in my neighborhood in Soho and my husband was like oh my gosh like polenta is uh is taking over from pasta now and 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 it's great to see because it is a really good a great staple that is not as well known in in britain or i wouldn't say very much outside of i'm sure like austria there's places in neighboring countries of italy it's eaten but in general it's not like associated with italy the way mozzarella and, and pasta is Um, So I thought it was, it was really heartwarming, Uh, of course, personally, quite touching for me. So, um, and the recipe is excellent, as most recipes are in the FT, so.
0: I loved it. It made me feel really hungry reading that story as well and uh, it's, as you were saying earlier about food is glue and that story made me think you know that those family values how important that's been to reconnect us um, in the light of the pandemic and also that baking and cooking and you know how people have been getting the old recipes out for that they might have made with their mother and, and grandmother and other family members how important that is to people and uh, hopefully that will stick won't it and people um value food a lot more than they maybe have done in the past when we've been a lot more fast moving
2: and also i think eating with your that generational bit with with grandparents there's been so much in the press around you know people not being able to see their family uh especially grandparents or like older people because they're shielding so you know i i feel it's a time to like reconnect uh and make 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 priorities around family uh whoever is in your family Um, And which is what this author is doing to a certain extent.
1: Yeah, I I loved the piece. And funnily enough, I picked up a bag of polenta last week. And I don't know whether I must have read about this new pop up um, restaurant or sort of polenta restaurant that you talked about, or whether there's just generally been more polenta coverage. I really don't know what possessed me, but I suddenly thought I'll I'll try some polenta. Um, And I haven't really done anything particularly um, noteworthy or exciting with it. So I was really, really pleased to see it's got some (laughs) recipes in there. So that is. Um, definitely inspired me to to try and make a little bit more of my polenta because you're absolutely right I don't think it is a staple that's particularly well known um, over here and I think if we do know of it we don't necessarily know how to make the most of it or how to serve it or prepare it so um i think it'll be really interesting to see whether um yeah polenta is going to pick up a little bit more momentum um around it and it's going to um you know, not necessarily compete uh with pasta i think that's probably a little bit um too ambitious but yeah perhaps become um a, an option that, that more of us are going to start experimenting with
0: julia what's your second pick
1: my second pick this week is from modern retail um, and it's an article called once a reliable event back to school shopping is about to dramatically change Um, and it's an article written by anna hensel what this is is a uh, u.s focused look at back to school shopping this year and it's back to school generally it's not necessarily grocery focused But I thought it raised some really interesting points and made some interesting observations that um, are potentially going to apply to what we're going to be seeing here in the UK as well. It's really trying to make sense of how the coronavirus outbreak has changed the way consumers are going to be approaching back-to-school shopping. And of course, retailers are therefore going to have to change their back-to-school strategies. The big challenge in all of this, of course, is... Are we going back to school? Who's going back to school? What is going back to school going to look like? And therefore, what are kids actually going to need and what's going to be on parents' back to school shopping list this year? Therefore, Um, there are a few key themes that are being picked up in, in this particular article that I thought were worth highlighting. And the first one is that there's an expectation that a lot more um, back to school shopping this year is going to happen online rather than in store. It's normally a very in-store focused event, lots of you know brilliant in-store activations and um, much more of an expectation that a lot of that is going to shift online this year. Um, there's a Deloitte survey um, in the US of parents and that suggests that 37% plan to do their back to school shopping online this year versus 29% a year ago and in terms of ranging um, we're looking at School friendly, kid friendly hand sanitizers and masks being among the items that are expected to be fairly high on um, parents' uh, shopping lists, but also supplies potentially for studying from home. If there is going to be a sort of you know school from home components still um parents will be looking to make sure that kids are comfortable and have all the equipment they potentially need that can include laptops there's increased spend on electronics expected but also perhaps um better desks to make sure that you know kids have sort of ergonomically desks um suitable desks and chairs um Anything around digital equipment, as I said, laptops, electronics, going to um, be a fairly big focus this year as well. third area that the article really focuses on is around marketing and how retailers are going to have to respond to all these these changes. And there's an interesting quote from an expert at Kantar who says you really probably want to have two pieces of creative ready to go for this year's back to school season. One, um, you know, that basically reflects that, yes, we are all going back to school. And another one, if um, more children are perhaps not able to return to school straight away and are going to have to do more studying from home as we go into the autumn. So that sort of recurring theme that we've seen throughout the pandemic, and you know, throughout coverage on the pandemic, is just so much uncertainty. And retailers having to suddenly look at these, you know, standard seasonal events that you could rely upon every year, um, suddenly in a completely new light, and and having to really rethink their ranging and, and rethink the way shoppers are going to shop um, around those occasions.
2: I, my first thought was like good for Paul Mel Hicks with Argos like because I mean who's in pole position here is Sainsbury's um, from like a UK I mean I, you hear my American accent so you know back to school is a very big thing in the US and it has the same type of activations as in the UK with Walmart etc so you know it, it, this article I, I kind of thought of, of both um both geographic territories, like how they do things from my experience. But because I'm, you know, working with the UK retailers, mostly I really thought about like how much Sainsbury's can do here because of the Argos tie up, but there's also the whole food element. So what I think is fascinating about, well, fascinating, I think in a negative, like a little bit behind, behind the curve of the U.S. is in the U.S. there are kids aisles In the US and Whole Foods Market, you have a dedicated aisle for like healthy kids' snacks and lunches. In the UK, you essentially would be shopping across in order to find like kids' type of food, which should have a different salt and sugar type of deck in the ingredient deck. So I kind of thought about the challenge around food for back to school. So I was thinking this is a major opportunity from like kids food type of ranging almost which doesn't really exist in any uk retail i mean most most of the people i'm dealing with in the retailers are parents and so they're all going through this themselves and i'm certainly don't think i'm the only parent whose school said you know you may be having to do packed lunches because of so i think there's going to be an opportunity there I hadn't thought about that, cat, and it's a
1: great
0: insight, the whole packed lunch market and the and the huge opportunity that offers. And I suppose, as you say, even if kids are only going back to school a couple of days a week and we, we don't know, quite know what's going to happen, um, for the days that they're not at school and they're sat at home, then what are we feeding them? And it, that's even more of a pressure on home, isn't it? To If you've got two parents that are maybe sat working from home as well, you want something quick and healthy that you can feed your kids. So that the, there is a huge opportunity there. Uh, the the other thing that I felt looking at this article it reminded me of when I was a school kid I absolutely hated it when you saw the back to school adverts and it was like the end of June, beginning of July and you hadn't broken up yet and it was giving you the big sell on uh, kids' uniforms and I was thinking I don't want to think about September I've, I've not even had my summer holidays yet but when you think about how much the big four have moved into uh, clothing and school clothing and to try and be probably a loss leader to get footfall into their stores and differentiate themselves. And and I wonder, you know, are parents going to be rushing out and buying new uniforms? Probably not. And there might haul back a little bit on those sort of purchases and as you say maybe invest more in tech and I, and I really like that comment in the article that is saying it's going to be chromebook led uh, the back to school uh, movement rather than uniforms and pencil cases
1: and backpacks. Absolutely and, and I think at your point about having dedicated kids food aisles in US retail I think is really interesting because you do wonder if we are seeing a bigger shift towards online shopping more generally anyway but particularly around a seasonal event such as back to school if more of that is done online it is of course easier to um, curate Kid-friendly food options in an online environment than it is to suddenly re-merchandise a store. Um, is that an opportunity there for for some, you know, some of the big four to really start differentiating themselves and how easy they make it for parents to navigate the range and pick out um, options that are going to be great for for kids for packed lunches?
2: There's a real opportunity where it could be curated in like an online aisle. Um, because it is exhausting right now in store to figure out what is healthy for a kid, unless you're going into the fresh aisle and, you know, you know, you're buying carrots, you're peeling them, et cetera. I try to do that, but sometimes, uh, sometimes I'm not able to. And just, if you want to have like a healthy snack, you literally, because there isn't a kid section, there's a baby section, but the baby section kind of ends it. 36 months max you have to curate that and those products are not normally made they're not made for kids but actually kids have nutritional needs at five and six
1: Nora, what's the um final article that you've picked this week So
0: my final article was in uh, Reuters but it's been covered in quite a few of the other titles this week as well and it's entitled Diageo to Launch Johnny Walker Whiskey in Paper Bottles in 2021 Uh, and this really caught my eye. Um, Obviously Diageo being the world's biggest spirit maker um, invest heavily in new product development and R&D generally so it's always interesting to to see what they're up to Um, and this bottle is going to be the first plastic-free bottle uh, that exists on the market and one of the things that really interested me about this was um, the company that uh, that was behind it originally called Pilot Light is a venture management company that has this wood pulp technology and Diageo have worked with Pilot Light to develop this paper packaging and what really interests me about this is some very heavy uh, vertical collaboration going on so this technology that they've developed is actually going to be also working with non-competing categories including Unilever on their Lipton tea lines and also PepsiCo too, so I was really intrigued that actually Diageo, and as it says in the article, is only using 5% of plastic in their uh, packaging, so relatively low, although they Are signed up to the UN uh, Sustainable Development Goals to reduce that by 2025. But actually, is this a huge business model for them to be able to invest in this technology and sell it to other huge FMCGs that might be in a a similar position and want to reduce their plastic usage? What do you think, Kat? Is this something that's going to take off and the cost to invest and find a technology like this must have been hugely significant?
2: I... I mean, I'm sure all the intentions are right. I think it's about getting a younger, ethical, kind of more moral compass type of customer because with all the challenger brands in the drink space, I think it's more about appealing to a certain type of customer. I felt it was interesting that it's Johnny Walker and what does that mean from a consumer perspective? Um, So I guess I read into it on the why and I think the investment piece around it is, of course, you know it would make sense because it's expensive to then sell it on to non-competing multinational FMCGs. But you know first and foremost, I saw it as a brilliant move to try to take away, you know, try to claw back some of the market share that, that you would be losing to, um, inc- to Challenger brands, also for it to be on shelf, like the on trade in the bars. I think it's a good talking point. So so for also not just grocery sales, but for the entree.
1: I think it's a really interesting take. And as you say, you know, It sort of creates a halo effect, doesn't it? Um, Doing something that sort of has a very clear sustainability edge to it and it does allow you to sort of position your brand perhaps a little bit more aggressively with a younger demographic. I did think the point about collaboration is quite interesting as well because we have seen that on some other sustainable packaging innovations as well. I think there's such consumer demand for those more sustainable options that I think companies also have a lot to gain from being seen to be the kind of innovators that aren't just innovating in order to advance their own market share, but to then also share knowledge and share breakthroughs a little bit more widely in the industry.
2: There's also the retailers that we all are our customers. So there's the end customer, but there's also you know the likes of Tesco, who quite frankly are very serious about sustainability. It's definitely a major legacy of Dave Lewis. Um, so I think for for me, I saw it as trying to reach you know a different type of customer because I have not seen I haven't seen Johnny Walker pivot in this kind of space before as a brand. Um, so this is a bit of a new 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 leaf, so to speak. Um, however, this is the kind of brand that would be doing very well in the big malts, and the UK retailers are quite serious about sustainability and you know. All of us, small and large, working working with them to offer a greener packaging solution. Are you
1: finding that is now a, a, an explicit talking point when buyers have conversations with you, for instance? Are they interested in understanding what sort of journey you are on in terms of um, sustainable, recyclable pouches and, and things like that?
2: I would definitely say like, it's very much at the strategic level. So... Um, and it's across the business, definitely in in Tesco, I I can say like what I think they've done really well is that they're actually, their head of sustainability, you know, would, before the virus came and we were still doing things in person, like on the, they do this, you know, a, a deep dive kind of day long conference with Baby and other suppliers. You know, I thought it was great that they brought out their head of sustainability to speak to us for like 45 minutes on everything uh, they'd like to see from us, but what Tesco is also doing, you know, and to have him take time out of his day to talk about that—it's very different than just the buyer talking about it. Of course, the buy are, the buyers are engaging on that for sure, but I also like how they're they're having people who only do that, and we've seen how Dave Lewis has taken on. Um, an NED role trustee role with WWF um, so I think it's really um, exciting and I think it's very authentic absolutely Kat it
1: has been an absolute pleasure having you on thank you so much uh, for joining It's great to um, hear you talk about the articles you picked but also really fantastic to get your take and your insight on them um, on our articles as well so thank you so much thank you, thank you. I've loved it That's all we have for you this week. Thank you so much for listening. You can find links to the articles we discussed in the show notes at thepicklist.co.uk. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe, give it a rating and leave a review. It makes a massive difference to our podcast and helps us reach more people in the food industry who'd enjoy listening to The Picklist.
0: Thanks again for listening. See you next time.